With my voice I cry out to the Lord. With my voice I plead for mercy to the Lord. I pour out my complaint before Him. I tell my trouble before Him. When my spirit faints within me, you know my way. In the path where I walk, they have hidden a trap for me. Look to the right and see. There's none who takes notice of me. No refuge remains to me. No one cares for my soul. I cry to you, O Lord. I say, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are too strong for me. Bring me out of prison, that I may give thanks to your name. The righteous will surround me, for you will deal bountifully with me. That is Psalm 142, which along with Psalm 140 are the Psalms appointed for today, Friday, October the 8th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thank you for being along. We are looking today at continuing our look at the kings of uh, Judah. We're finishing up <coughs> with today with that, and then we're going to continue to look at, and that's in 2 Kings 23, 36 through uh, chapter 24, verse 17. Also in the first epistle, epistle of Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 12, verses 12 to 26, and then in Matthew's gospel, chapter 9, verses 27 to 34. So uh, here we go, looking at the, the sort of the finale of the kings of Judah. Now, they will come back from Babylon, um, but not with kings in place any longer. They're, the next king of uh, Israel will be Jesus. And so <clears throat> here we go. Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Zebediah, the daughter of Padiah of Rumah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his fathers had done. So he, he did all the same things that his fathers, those who had come before him, had done. This is not speaking of Josiah, obviously. Um, and so he's, he is an evil, wicked king. In his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the... What an idiot is all I have to say about that. I mean, why would you have rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar? There's no possibility that was going to go well or end well. This was the most powerful king on earth at the time. And the Lord sent against him bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians and bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it. They're doing this on behalf of the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who's in Babylon. And this, did you hear what I said there, though? And the Lord sent against him. So according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. So the Lord is the one doing this. It's not Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the, is the instrument through which this is accomplished, but he is not the catalyst for it. It's the Lord. It's the judgment that he has promised through the prophets on Judah. Surely this will come upon Judah at the command of the Lord to can move them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh, according to all that he had done, and also for the innocent blood he had shed. For he filled Jerusalem with innocent blood, and the Lord would not pardon. It's done. It's finished. There's nothing going to go forward <clears throat> with this because of the evil of Manasseh and the, and the degradation of the people of God during that period of time. Now the rest of the deeds of Jehoiakim and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah? So Jehoiakim slept with his fathers, and Jehoiachin, his son, reigned in his place. And the king of Egypt did not come again out of his land, for the king of Babylon had taken all that belonged to the king of Egypt from the brook of Egypt to the river Euphrates. 
and what they're saying is is that they're they're taking them that that the king of Egypt didn't have the courage to come up and step up against the king of Babylon because he had lost everything already and so there was no way he was going to come and protect Israel because he stood to lose everything even more than he had already lost if he had tried to assist. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king, and he reigned three months <laughs> in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father had done. At the time, the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, and the city was besieged. And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to the city while his servants were besieging it. And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, gave himself up to the king of Babylon, himself and his mother and his servants and his officials and his palace officials. It's the sad, sad moment. The king of Babylon took him prisoner in the eighth year of his reign and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house, and cut in pieces all the vessels of gold in the temple of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made, as the Lord had foretold. How horrible is this, that they, that everything is taken out of the house of the Lord, and all the vessels of gold that are in the temple of the Lord are cut into pieces, and so they are no longer meaningful in any way except for as gold. And it's just an incredibly sad ending of what should have been the greatest nation in the history of the world, because this was the one nation with whom God entered a covenant relationship, and they couldn't keep it. <clears throat> That's who we are. I'm not picking on them. I'm just saying it, we, we are not good covenant keepers. He carried away all Jerusalem all the officials, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. And so you've got the poorest people in the land living in a devastated city in a devastated land, a land which is useless for all intents and purposes. And he carried away Jehoiachin, to Babylon, the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, and the chief men of the land he took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon all the men of valor, 7,000, and the craftsmen and the metal workers, 1,000, all of them strong and fit for war. And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and changed his name to Zedekiah. That changing of the name involves a, a declaration of dominance, that that. Mataniah, now Zedekiah, is nothing more than a vassal under um, Nebuchadnezzar. Changing of the name is an important thing. Remember, we see people all through the Bible whose name is changed. Abraham's name is changed from Abram. Sarai becomes Sarah. Uh, Jacob becomes Israel. So that we see on and on, we see people's names being changed. Then we see Jesus using that prerogative with Peter, your uh, Simon upon whom I will build this rock. So he calls him Cephas at that time. And so it's a sad ending, as I said, to what could have been the greatest empire the world has ever seen. It was intended to be the place where everyone came because of the wisdom of the people, the productivity of the land, and the beauty of the entire establishment of the nation. And instead we see it devastated. And, and so often I mean, we, we see great churches that are now abandoned. There's a church here in Asheville that, that once 
had regularly several hundred people every single Sunday, apparently. Great revival had broken out there, but by the time we came here, there were 30 or 40 people there. They didn't even meet in the main um, part of the church. They met in a little chapel. It's a sad thing to see um, God's temple, God's buildings just desecrated because people forgot and people walked away. And so it's if it's not renewed in every generation, then it's going to go away. It's a sad reality. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus passed on from there. Remember, he had gone and healed the ruler's daughter. <clears throat> Two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on a son of David. That's a, an extraordinary declaration this early in Jesus' ministry that they're calling him the son of David. That they, They're calling him Messiah is what that means, that if he is the son of David, he is the one who will sit on the throne of David. And when he entered the house, the blind man came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I'm able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. The mercy they're asking for is healing. They're, they're asking him as Messiah to take mercy on them as blind men in accordance with the promise that God made through Isaiah that, that the blind sight would be restored to the blind. And so he's asking them, Do you truly believe? You're saying it with your lips, but do you truly believe this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And so their eyes were opened. So there's what it's an interesting way that Jesus declares that, right? According to your faith, let it be done to you. And so ultimately what he's saying is, is that, that, that if your eyes are truly opened here in a second, it's going to be everything to do with your faith. It's going to be rewarded. Do you have the faith you say you have? And we're going to prove that one way or another. And their eyes were open. It's a wonderful thing. Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As I've said this before, that maybe the best thing we could do in the church is to tell people, don't talk about this. Do not tell people about Jesus. Because every time he did it, people went and did exactly the opposite. As they were going away, behold, a demon-possessed man who oppressed man, sorry, not possessed, oppressed man, who was mute, was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And then this is the ridiculous ending of that lesson, right? But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. It's an absolutely amazing summary of this. Why in the world would they have thought that? You know, they see him hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. They see him going to the land of the Gerasenes. They see him going to all these people that they would have shunned. And because of that, because he doesn't do things the way they do, because he doesn't submit to them, because he doesn't act like them, because he doesn't bless them, then they say, oh, he has a demon. He is filled with a demonic spirit, and that's when Jesus' back gets up. Whenever you say things like this, whenever you say Jesus was filled with a demonic spirit, that's when he'll say things like there's a sin that won't be forgiven man. You're attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to a demon, and so you're blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, who is not here to defend himself. And so you see this adoration and the love of the Trinity and, and the defense that Jesus makes concerning the one who cannot defend himself— the Holy Spirit, who is being, uh, whose work is being ascribed to the work of a demon. And that's when Jesus stands into this and, and says there's a sin that can't be forgiven. In the 1 Corinthians passage, 
Paul, remember, has been he, yesterday he talked about the spiritual gifts, and now he says, and remember the 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 important point in that was is that that as the Trinity are one, and it's an undivided one, and there's only one Spirit, one Jesus, one Father, and they are one. So is the body one, and that's exactly what he says. For just as the body, and he's speaking here physically, is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit you're baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so he's having to say this to this uh, Corinthian church, largely because he, he says there are divisions among you. It's not good that there are divisions among you. And I hear these things are happening when you come to the table, and, and the divisions are based in these kinds of divisions. Jews are gla- Greeks, slaves are free. They're not seeing each other as equals, and uh, those who are created equally in the image of God. They're seeing each other in those other roles. He said, the body doesn't consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, that wouldn't make it any less than a part of body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each of them as he chose. And all of them are equally important, is what he's saying. And sometimes we can look down on ourselves and we can say, well, I don't have those kind of flashy gifts. My gifts may be gifts of service, gifts of hospitality and all that. Those things that aren't raised up in the congregation necessarily. He says, if it was all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there's many parts, yet one body, and there's something to celebrate in all those varieties of parts in the body. He says, I can't say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are actually indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. <clears throat> but God, which are those which are more presentable parts, do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. And if one member is honored, all rejoice together. What a beautiful picture uh, that Paul paints here of what the body of Christ should look like. That, that we don't look down on one another for, for our station in life. We don't look down on one another for, for, or, or up to one another and down on one another in the same way by exalting some of the gifts. That's exactly what it's supposed to look like, that we're all supposed to work together as one. And then there's true beauty when all those things are working together as one and when all value the gifts of the others and all are celebrated. And it's the hardest thing to do, to be honest with you, because some of those things seem like they're far more important than others. But one of the things that bugs me is that I had a guy several years ago who who came to me, he had done, he had undone some evangelistic work that I had done in talking to somebody who was outside the body of Christ. And he had, and I didn't know how he had done it, except for she told me that he invited her to come to church with him. And, and he, and, and she said, no, I'm a Buddhist. And his response was, well, why did you reject, do you think it's all right that you reject Jesus without ever trying? And, and she said, well, what makes you think I didn't? And so when I confronted him about this, his response was, John, I got the gift of evangelism. 
Well, evangelism is telling people about the gospel. It's sharing the gospel in such a way that they can hear it. I said, you actually think you have a gift that's not a gift, and that gift is something like the the gift of inviting people to church. And that's too often what we've made of things, is, is that you come to church and you hear somebody else proclaim the gospel. You, you hear somebody else share that truth. Well, you're in relationship with that person, or, so why are you not sharing the gospel with them? I mean, you can share the basics, even even the very least you can share the basics and then say, if you want to hear more and know more, then come to church with me or whatever. But, but if that's all you have, then you are to blame for the problem. You're, you, there's no gift of inviting people to church. There's no such thing. And so what we need to do is we need to make sure that we're being discipled and that we're prepared to share the good news. We're always prepared to give a defense of the hope that lives within us and the joy that lives within us. If all we got is come to church with me, then we've misunderstood dramatically what the body of Christ is. We've misunderstood our role in the kingdom. And, and that's where the church begins to fall apart, when people think that their role is to congregate and to get others to congregate, then we've lost the sense of the body of Christ the way that Paul speaks of it and the way that Jesus designed it.